Okay, well, so here we are, coming toward the end of our Heaven's Ten series on the Ten Commandments and heading for Christmas. We've been looking at the commandments in the reverse order, as we've said, and find ourselves looking at the one concerning idols. But what on earth can this have to say to us today? You might be wondering. After all, the Israelites were a rum lot, weren't they? Not only did they grumble and bow down to other gods, serving Baal and the Asterods and all the sorts of other things, many gods, they, forgot the, the, they often forgot to worship the true God. And they did that after they had known the living God guiding them. He had consistently and miraculously led them and sustained them over a long period of time in a personal way. He had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, miraculously healed, led them out of the desert by a pillar of cloud, day and night. He'd fed them. When they'd complained they were thirsty, he'd given them food and drink so they didn't starve in the desert. He gave them fresh water, bread morning and night, like, you know, just appearing. This was their experience of God. But then, when Moses went up, Moses, their leader, went up to personally talk with God just because he seemed to be about it a long time and was a long time coming down, they, um, what did they do? They complained. They got all the women to take off their golden earrings and fashioned their own idol. How ridiculous. And then, not only did they do that, they made a golden calf out of their own earrings and then said, these are our gods that brought us out of Egypt. <laughs> So, what on earth, when you look at them and what they were like, what on earth could it have to say to us today? Because surely we're nothing like them, are we? Well, let me tell you that having looked at this over the last few days, having considered it and prayed about it, I'm going to make an attempt this morning to show you that actually we're right up there with the Israelites on idolatry. We're right up there with pushing him out of the way and worshipping other things. We're right up there with them in this whole thing about worshipping idols. We have been neglecting the true God in spite of our experience of him, and we are in need, desperate need, as they were, of a drastic turnaround. So that's what I'm going to try and do this morning, but first, let's pray. Living God, we know you. We know you in our lives, and yet we don't give you the centre of our lives often enough. So often we live for other things. And so often we think we're doing okay, and we think we're all right. We come to church on Sunday, we pray to you, we worship you even. But the reality is, you're not at the centre of our lives. Teach us this morning about what that really means. I pray that you will speak through me, that every word I speak would be yours and not mine. Living God, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's remind ourselves first of what God said. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to the thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, 
Queen Elizabeth is the only monarch in this country. We can only have one reigning monarch at a time. And when she, when she was coronated, um, she couldn't really, it wouldn't have been appropriate for her to say to her sister, hey, Margaret, let's share it. Let's share the throne, shall we? After all, some people prefer you to me. Some people like you better and would prefer to have you on the throne. So actually, let's do it together. I'll budge up and we'll both sit on the throne. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? This country can only have one monarch, one king or queen. Similarly, there can only be one monarch reigning in our lives. There is only room for one on the throne of our lives. Now, when God said here that he's a jealous God, this was not a childish, churlish sort of jealousy. It was because we will only truly experience his power and his presence in our lives if we allow him full access to all of our lives. He wants our undivided hearts. Imagine, imagine a man who told his wife, you're not fulfilling my needs really, so I'm going to have one or two other women on the go at the same time. Any wife with an ounce of dignity would not tolerate it. You're supposed to be married to me. I'm not sharing you around. And neither will God share us with false gods, as he is totally devoted to us. He wants the same of us to him. What this commandment is about, if you haven't guessed it already, is occupancy of the throne of our lives. Who or what is at the centre? God cannot share this position. He can't say, I'll budge up and make room for other stuff. He wants to mean more to us than anything else. So, what I'm going to do this morning is answer four questions, or make an attempt at answering four questions around this subject. One is, so what is the problem? Why is it such a big deal? Two, what are our idols today? What sort of things do we put on the throne of our lives? Number three, what can we do about it? And number four, is it worth it, or shall we just get on with what we're doing already? Right at the start, to kick us off, I'd like to, do, um, to remind us of what God said about idol worship and how ridiculous it is. Here in Isaiah 44, um, we have described in some detail how man makes idols, of himself, makes idols himself and then worships them. Um, I, I won't read the whole thing now. I've just got to put a few verses on the PowerPoint. But... You know, if, if, if this grabs you, read some more at home, because it really is ridiculous what man does. Um, All who make idols are nothing, God says, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who, speak, who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol? What can profit, what can pro, that, that, which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. And it goes on later in that chapter to say that he cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and and the rain to go. This This is man's fuel for burning. It's just wood. Half of the wood he burns in the fire and prepares his meal over it. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself by it and says, oh, I'm warm, I see the fire. But then, from the other half, the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. But they know nothing. They understand nothing. 
Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. So, a bit later it says, half of it I used for fuel, I even baked bread. And then, then he goes on to say, yet I bow down and worship it. Can you see, I'm laboring this point. It's ridiculous. And yet that's what we do today. We take things that are man-made, that are empty of themselves, and we worship them. And yet, compare that in contrast with the living God described in Isaiah 40. I love these verses. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? And it goes on. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. This is the true and living God. Who shall we worship? An idol made by man? Or the God of heaven who measures out the heavens with a span of his hands? So, but what's the problem? Are we getting on all right, aren't we? (laughs) I wonder what you think of when you think of an idol. I think for me it would perhaps be something like a totem pole or one of the many Hindu gods or Buddhas. Perhaps it's the Asherah poles that the Israelites used or the golden calf you might think of. But really all that is to miss the point. It's function, not form, that matters here. As we've seen from God's reaction to the golden calf, it's the act of idolatry, the act of idolatry that's the problem. The form of the idol itself is almost irrelevant. It's a matter of the focus of the heart. So my first question, what is the problem? And I want to say it's function, not form, that counts. And here in Samuel, we see that the point point is underlined. The Lord looks on the heart. An idol is something, anything, which takes God's place in our lives. What is the problem? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Of course, he spelt this out. It's very clear. But what if we don't? Well, this commandment, as we've seen with all the others, was made for our benefit. God is against idolatry not just because it robs himself of his rightful worship, but because it is hurtful to us. It cheats us out of a fulfilling relationship with the living God and entices us into settling for second best, an infinitely inferior experience of life, which is a hollow shell compared to what it could be if we sat God on the throne of our lives. And yet we're really good at finding our own idols to worship, aren't we? John Calvin, an, earlier, an early theologian, said this, Every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. Every one of us is a master craftsman of idols, even from when we're very young. I'm going to consider three types of idols that we worship today. I'm going to talk about things and people, thoughts and sensations, and supernatural power. Just very briefly. (laughs) So what are our idols today? Things and people. 
Here in Ephesians it says, a greedy man is an idolater. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having things, wanting things within reason. It's only when they take our focus, uh, the focus at God's expense that it's a problem. How many of you have already written your Christmas list, I wonder? We can be consumed by a desire for things. The latest mobile phone, iPod, MP3 player, Apple notebook, the nicest car, the nicest house, and of course, money, money, money. Oh, there's people too, isn't there? People we get hooked on and we that take our take our attention too much. Phil and I went to the National Portrait Gallery week before last, and I stood looking at a portrait of David Beckham's face and shoulders. In the picture, he was asleep. An incredible likeness. What a fine and talented artist, I thought, must have produced such a likeness with such detail. Then I noticed something incredible. It was moving. It was a video of him sleeping, there amongst the portraits. Now, I only stood there for a few minutes, honestly, I did. But I'm sure that there are those who would stand there for a very long time to watch him sleep. He is, for some, an idol of our time. Some of us get hooked on relationships and the need for social interaction, social status, popularity, recognition, and they become our goal. How much time and attention is absorbed with social networking on the internet, I wonder? How many of us spend hours surfing the net, reading gossip disguised as news, or are hooked on Facebook, Bebo, or MSN Messenger to an unhealthy degree? All of these things can absorb us. All of these things can edge themselves onto the throne of our lives. And what about our thoughts? Where do they take us? And our desire for all manner of sensations and the promise and all the promise with all the promise they bring. Mark speaks here of what comes out of our hearts, and much of it is sadly familiar to us. For from within, out of the desire of our hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and and folly. You will have heard me speak before, if you've been around Burlington for a while, of my own secular career and how I was driven to succeed. I was always chasing the next promotion, the next level of responsibility, climbing the ladder, always chasing after success in pursuit of fulfilment. It drove me, consumed me. It was not a good way to be. There is nothing wrong with a good career, but when we let it take over the throne of our lives, when it's the central driving force, it pushes God out, and we are the one who misses out on a life of fulfilment and peace, where there is no need for striving, that life that God wants to share with us. So there are things and people, there are thoughts and sensations, which I've only just touched on, and there is also a more sinister area that of supernatural power. John Calvin, again, it seems to be a Calvin morning, said, we must remember that Satan has his miracles too. And you know, some of the stuff around us today looks harmless enough, looks helpful even. And to some extent, the dangerous thing is it works, some of it, to some extent, but only 
at great cost. Here in Leviticus um, and elsewhere, we are forbidden from seeking help and influence from sources other than God. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, this sounds very dramatic, and I wonder if you're thinking, well, I'd never do such a thing as that. But often, you know, it's dressed up as being something harmless, helpless even, helpful even. God has promised to meet all our needs, and yet we're tempted to seek power and influence through things which are forbidden. How many of us, for instance, read the horoscope, touch wood for luck, avoid walking under ladders, carry a lucky charm or wear a lucky ring. Some of you will have sought healing from New Age-type remedies, practice meditation associated with yoga, placed crystals in your home for their perceived positive influence. Some of you, I'm sure, will have consulted a fortune teller or even a medium. All these things remove God from his rightful place in our lives because we're failing to trust him completely. Through these things, we open ourselves up to unhelpful and even dangerous influences and are breaking this commandment as we do so. Another related area to this is the whole area of Freemasonry. This is often associated with good works, harmless socialising and glittering dinner dances. And yet... Every Christian study on Freemasonry has found that it entails religious practices and convictions that are inherently incompatible with the Christian faith. So, that's my brief look at what our idols are today, and I'm sure you can think of many more. Heather mentioned many more in the, in the young people's talk. And we all know, well, we, we, I, I, mean, I want to invite you to consider your own life. Take a closer look. Who or what do I worship? Here in Mark it says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Who or what sits on the throne of your life? Where does your mind go in idle moments? No pun intended. Where, does your brain, where do you go when your brain slips into neutral? Because it's a bit of an indicator, indication of what, make it, what, you, what you're hanging your life on. What is it that takes your attention, brings you alive, absorbs you, consumes you? What is it that you rely on? Who or what is on the throne at the centre of you? If it's not the living God, the King of Kings, you're missing out. So, question four, what can we do about it? Three things we can do about it. We can take heart, we can take action, and we can take control. Firstly, take heart. Well, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is that as we have seen, God's anger burns over and over again about idols. 
Many times Israel was unfaithful to God through the worship of idols, as we read about earlier. King after king, almost without exception, bowed down to idols and led their people in it. And we're no different today. Through it all, all that we have read, we sense God's pain. It angers him. It pains him. It damages our relationship with him. But take heart, there is good news too. The good news is that he is waiting to help you to shake them off, longing to take his rightful place back at the centre of your lives, longing to bless a thousand times as promised. Here in Isaiah, we see that even after the behaviour of the Israelites, he chose to remember their sin no more. But we have to make the choice to burn our Asherah pole, melt down our golden calf, and invite him back on to the throne. And we have to seek and accept God's forgiveness. Take heart. We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And in this way, we restore that relationship. We put God back on the throne of our lives. We also need, we need to take heart. We also need to take action if we're going to restore the relationship as God intended. If we do nothing differently, it's likely that nothing will change. Here in Acts, we see that those who had been involved in sorcery burnt their scrolls. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. God said to the Israelites, cut down your Asherah poles, throw them onto the fire so that we can get rid of that. So, So we need to get rid of that lucky ring, get rid of that charm, those new age crystals. We need to reassess our attitude to our jobs, our hobbies, our needs. What are our desires? Stop reading the horoscope. Take whatever action is necessary to get rid of the wrong focus in our lives. Some of us will even need to move away in order to move away from whatever it is in order to escape temptation. It might mean a new job, a new group of friends in order to break break old thought patterns and habits. Sometimes it takes drastic action if we're serious about this. Renounce it, and if necessary, find someone to pray with you about it. So we need to take action. In John, uh, it's put quite simply, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep away from it. Keep away. So, what can we do about it? We need to take heart. We need to take action. We need to take control. But it's tough giving up some of this stuff, which by definition is central to our lives. But God doesn't ask us to do it alone. We need to take control. God does not ask us or expect us to do it alone. And here in Ephesians, we read of his power working within us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.
I've almost finished. But in conclusion, my final, my final question was, if you remember, was, is it worth it? Well, we were made to worship. It's ingrained in us. That longing deep inside that we seek to fulfill with idol worship by seeking pleasure, fulfillment and control elsewhere reflect the fact they're driven by a desire within us to worship. That longing we feel deep within is a longing for God. And in Psalm 37 we read, as I come to an end, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do all this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. So there's a promise with this commandment. If we love God and keep his commandments, he will show his love to a thousand generations and shower his blessings. That seems to me like a pretty unbeatable offer. But we have to choose to take it, choose to obey, and put God at the centre on the throne of our lives. Let's pray.